Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. I'm amazed when I hear men, even conservative men, calling for women to be drafted. It's as though they don't have enough to do raising children. She said, I raised eight children. And women in the United States and elsewhere die every day in childbirth. And there are no statues to the heroism of women who are raising the next generation of citizens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. What We Can't Not Talk About. These days, it seems that one of the things we cannot discuss is gender, or we cannot discuss it unless we use a non-traditional framework, non-traditional narrative, non-traditional lens. Well, in this show, we talk about women and men, both traditionally and non-traditionally. And to do both things at once, I think that today we have the most perfect guest. With me today is Dr. Susan Yoshihara, President of the American Council on Women, Peace and Security. Good morning, Susan, and welcome on our show. Morning, Mariana. It's wonderful to be here. And uh, thank you for letting me come and hello to all the guests. So as I said, today our conversation will most likely speak of both traditional and non-traditional roles of women. Now, I think, Susan, I, I call you Susan because I know you, but, you know, Dr. Yoshiara, would you help me explain to our audience the reason why I think, and I think I'm, I have good reasons to think that you are the best guest that we could have for that, and perhaps a few words about your background will help me in this respect. Well, thank you. A traditional and non-traditional, I was just speaking with this with some mothers the other day because I have a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old daughters, and you know, one of them loves very girly things. And she's in a club called the little women after school club with baking cookies and watching little women. And the other one is on the basketball team and can't stand the thought of making bracelets and and watching little women. And so, you know, we all come, women are so beautiful because we are also very unique. And when I was that age, I think I wasn't very unusual at all. But when I was 17, I was inspired to go to the Naval Academy. I wanted to defend my country. I was very moved by current events, things that were happening in the Middle East with the hostages. And I decided to go to Annapolis at 17, cut off all my hair, join the Navy, as they say, and spent 24 years there flying helicopters, combat logistics helicopters. I was in the Gulf War and I led really uh, wonderful teams of men and women for 24 years. I guess it was very unusual at the time, but not unusual today. I Well, maybe it is unusual today. I do think about my daughters and I can imagine either of them going into the military, I suppose. And it doesn't matter what your background is. All our motivations are different. It could be patriotism. It could be a feeling that we have this mission given to us by God. And that goes for, I think, all of our career fields, including one that I started late in life when I was in my 40s, and that is wife and mother, which I think is the most enjoyable of all of my careers. Wonderful. Yeah. I want to add a couple of things to this description you did, Arisa, but since this is only an audio podcast, I would like for the audience to know that, no, you don't have short hair right now. And you definitely, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have beautiful, long, blonde hair. And when I met you a couple of years ago, I was, I could not, I mean, the sweetness of the way you've worked for family in the job that you've always done and for women and things you wrote and the kindness that is very distinctive of you would never have made me guess that you went to the Naval Academy. But 
Just to mention for our audience, you're now the founder and president of the American Council on Women, Peace and Security dedicated to advancing peace and security for women, their families and communities through education and training. You have participated in new negotiation on development and on human rights since 2006 as a member of civil society, and you've served on the Holy See delegation to the UN Commission on Population and Development. You have served, as you mentioned, 20 years as an active-duty U.S. Navy helicopter pilot in the Western Pacific and led combat logistics mission in the Gulf War, conducted humanitarian assistance missions in Africa, Asia, and the Pacific Island. So because of that, you know, I thought of you as a guest on our, on our show because of the way you can talk about women, but of course, the very recent events that are happening in Ukraine and yeah. in Russia made me think that you're probably the best person also to help us see, you know, not necessarily going into the current events and what is happening right now, but using the worst scenarios to understand. For instance, the first thing that I would like to understand is, does it matter? It's, it's a question I had with Professor Ignaris on the last episode we recorded, and it aired just before yours. Do people fight for their family? Because it, right, so it, is, is the experience yeah. of you know, you know exactly where, where you know where, where we're in yeah, question. That's is, very so. true. You know, I, I also am on the selection board for very bright high school seniors who want to go to one of the service academies. And one thing I make sure I tell all of them is it really needs to be personal. It has to be your idea to go. It can't be something your family wants you to do or you're following, not just following in footsteps. Anyone who dedicates him or herself to a demanding career like the military or medicine or law like you do or research or any of these careers, it really has to be personal because there are long, lonely times, especially in a combat situation. And uh, there are times out at sea. I remember there was this time I called, it was like this hugless years, three years without people calling me by my first name or giving it a hug. I mean, imagine years of your life where you don't, you're never in proximity to anyone who knows you intimately enough that you would be really addressed by your first name. It's quite um, isolating and lonely. And that's when we have to remember our purpose. And our purpose is given to us. Some of us, uh, we have a charism that's given to us, a certain way of executing our personal mission. But boy or girl, man or woman, that has to be very personal. And we have to believe in the right thing because there are times when it's very difficult and there are always moral dilemmas that we run into. As I said, I was a I was a girly girl. I, I grew up a girly girl. I had perms in the 80s. I was always in there getting my perms and using my, I remember going to the Annapolis and, and the girls said to me when I was staying with them, are you sure you want to cut up all your hair? I mean, really? And I thought, what a shallow thing to say about serving your country. But on the other hand, I think we do underestimate ourselves and others, even when we're in the middle of it. I know that it was unusual, but I also know that, um, you know, when I graduated, there were a thousand men and about 60 women. There were very few. Now, when I take my girls to the Naval Academy games, the football games every month, there are 30% women at Annapolis. So things have really changed. And one thing I notice now is that all of them look like supermodels. I mean, they all have beautiful long hair and ponytails. We had to cut our hair really short back in the day. We all looked very, very. But now I think that we have accommodated uh, the femininity with the military a lot better than we did back in the day when they didn't know what to do with us. Look, I look at what's happening right now in the world. And this is the reason I founded the American Council on Women, Peace and Security. And it all started on one very particular day, which I can tell you about if you want. Mm -hmm. I realized that the reason we in you know, a great power like ours, the United States, 
the reason why any of us serve and women in particular is so that we can be at the service of our fellow men and women. I mean, I realized the day that I was working with refugees out in the high seas, God found me very unexpectedly out there and had me working with women refugees. I realized that my purpose is not just to work my way up the ladder and prove myself as a woman, right? That's what I thought it was at 17. By the time I hit my 20s, I realized my purpose was to be in the military so that I was there to serve women. I was one of two women in a battle group. There were, you know, thousands of thousands of men in this battle group of seven ships and only two of us women. And my job was to take care of hundreds of women refugees that we rescued off the high seas. If I hadn't been there, they wouldn't have had that woman's touch, that ability for to reach out as a woman. By the time we finished, we were embracing one another and crying because I had found my purpose and they had found human touch on the high seas that they never expected. And I think that it's true, our women in Afghanistan, when we formed female engagement teams that went out and talked with women, having women in the service allows that feminine touch to be there for other women, as well as the more traditional war fighting. And so I really see that as one of the purposes of this women, peace and security agenda is that women bring something very different to the military. It's not the same. It's very different, but it's necessary. I like what you say, because it's somehow still speaks of the complementarity and the differences, right? So the need for both, which doesn't mean everything goes and everything is the same with Dr. Regneris, where we're talking about how the president of Ukraine is calling all the men back to go and fight, which does not mean that women cannot go. But for some, I don't know, I do you think it's a biological? What, what is the reason why it comes immediately to mind that men should be called back to fight? And not, you know, yeah. I heard one of the foremost researchers on women, peace and security is a woman by the name of Valerie Hudson, and she is down at Texas A&M and she does quantitative research. But I heard her speaking at the Naval War College, and this is what she had to say about the draft. She said, you know, I'm amazed when I hear men, even conservative men calling for women to be drafted. It's as though they don't have enough to do raising children. She said, I raised eight children. And women in the United States and elsewhere die every day in childbirth. And there are no statues to the heroism of women who are raising the next generation of citizens. And now we also have to be compelled to go and fight for our country while we're home, raising the citizens who are going to go fight for the country. I mean, there has to be some balance. And I listened to her and I thought, wow. And this is from a woman who really moves in very feminist circles. And she's provided data and research for all of the feminist research on women in the military. And yet she recognized that we all have our role. And one of the roles of women is to physically bear children and raise them to the next generation. And I think that this is a very ancient principle as well. You know, in the early Christian era, someone reminded me of this when I was first married, they didn't send even newlyweds out to wars. They let them have some reprieve, men and women, so that they could raise the family. And that's how important the family was in ancient times and so much more today. And I think this movement of having both paternity and maternity leave shows that. But then you see this dissonance when you expect us all to bear everything at all times. We can't. It's physically impossible. Now, I will tell you, however, that in 2014, when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine, Ukraine instituted a conscription for women as well. And women are upward of 10% of the armed forces. But when it comes to snipers, gunnery officers, and in ground combat, 22.5% of them are women. 
Okay, that's that's pretty large. So women have been conscripted for a very long time and they are mothers and they are raising their children and they have been evacuated with their children. And you see some of those women staying with husbands, you know, especially if they don't have children or they sent the children away. Yes, women are doing Herculean things, but it's important to remember they always have. I mean, women have also been side by side. When push comes to shove, when you're saving your family and your country, women have been involved in wars in the past. I have a question that is more about what you think about this doubt or feeling I have, which is based on, again, on the fact that the war leaves memories on us, right? So the people that have been in war and that have, have fought, they there is something that is haunting. It's not something that it finished and it ends there. I was wondering if that is true for you and if that might somehow affect those attitudes and the things that a child expects from a mother, you know, like the welcoming, the sweetness there, or whether war somehow requiring such a distance and coldness and the fact that maybe, you know, yeah. you have to you have to kill something that for Christian is a brother remains in you and might somehow transform us in ways that are not motherly. Yeah, certainly. And also not fatherly. When you think of our father in heaven and how kind and gentle he is, how merciful he is, certainly, and that our Lord, a bruised reed, he would not break. I mean, he comes in such gentleness and compassion. But yes, this is certainly, you know, I think it was St. Augustine who said, the worst thing that war does is what it does to the warrior. And the effects, we have to be very careful. And that's why those just war principles, those use ad bellum, the reason we go to war, we have to be very conscious of the fact that war changes us. And it changes those of us who go to war. I felt the effects of that, certainly coming out of the military and then becoming a mother, it's drastically different. The personality and capabilities you have to have, there's no doubt about that. Um, and yet we are able to do it. We're human and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, we're capable of doing that. But yes, it's very different. And we see veterans, you know, back in the olden days, veterans had a long march home or they took a long ship home and there was a way to sort of prepare to come back to family life. And these days in war, you hop on a plane and you're back in the family within days and it is very difficult. And we've seen that time and again with the 20 years of war in the United States. That's for men and women. Very difficult to reintegrate. And that's why we're having such a difficulty with them, suicides and so many other things. So, yes, we definitely have to pay far more attention to those things which are required for family and those things which are required for fighting. Which somehow brings me, this reflection you had just somehow brings me to the current events, but also to something you wrote, I think it was 2010, a book, you're the author of this book, Waging War to Make Peace, U.S. Intervention in Global Conflicts which I read examines, I must confess, I haven't read it, which examines why the great powers enter small wars. So is that book for you a framework also to read what is happening right now? Do you have, I don't want you to say, you know, who's right or who's wrong, because I think we are all having a hard time mm. even understanding what it is that we're reading. But yeah, how do you see this conflict? I contacted you after reading what you were writing about the just yeah. wars. I'm very conscious that I have not heard enough about just war in the last several weeks, you know, and this was true when I wrote the book, I focused on comparing two different wars, one our intervention in Kosovo and one our intervention in Iraq. And so many things had changed and stayed the same. But one of the things I was concerned about is that the voice of the just war doctrine principles, which are ancient, which were articulated first in the fourth century by Augustine of Hippo, which have been around, you know, since human history, 
And that is that there are times that self-defense is justified. And by self, we also mean defending another is justified. And the use of force to defend life, because life is so precious, is justified. That is common to all of us in the NATO nations. And it precedes international law that is written. It precedes the UN. It precedes Kant. It precedes and it is part of our culture. And yet we forget that sometimes. And we start to talk about, you know, no fly zones and whether to fly, you know, to sell Polish jets through the United States and, and this sort of thing. And we start to worry about, you know, this nuclear power. And we start to talk past one another instead of talking about principles that we all know are true. Look, this is an unjust war. What's happening now? We all know that. It is not launched to make peace. It is not It is not discriminating between civilians and military. It is resisting peace processes. It's not done with right intention. It's certainly not proportional. Now, it, you could argue it has a legal authority because it's a sovereign state launching it on a sovereign state, but not to redress any injury. And redressing injury is absolutely fundamental to a just war. And yet I don't hear a lot of conversations about these principles. And the reason these principles are important is because it brings so many actors to the table and it can unite the allies. We watched it unite the allies in the past. And one of the things we have to remember is the unity of the international order, the unity of the allies is going to last beyond this war and beyond many other wars. That just world order is what we are all seeking, right? Justice of the world order. It should be our long-term goal. And so sometimes that takes intervening against grave injustices, and sometimes it doesn't. Susan, I, I would like to hear your opinion also on this. I thought I recently had, we both worked, you both for a lot, way longer than me, dealing with the United Nations. And, you know, me as a lawyer also, you know, looking at this declarations of fundamental rights and being educated in Europe, thinking that, oh, yeah, everybody agrees on fundamental rights. But that maybe this talk, the fact that you don't hear any talking about just war principles is actually showing us that these declarations are actually like no one is really caring about them unless it is for very trivial purposes. Mm. When we don't talk about these principles, these basic human principles, we demean the whole. So the UN, all of our institutions are based on a, it's almost like a commodity like money is. You have to trust the system. You have to be a basic trust that these principles matter for any of those resolutions to matter at all, right? Otherwise it's a mockery, really. And these are not Western ideas, they're human ideas. That's another thing. We cannot say that human rights are a construct or the just war principles or, or Western construct rather, Western, they're human in their nature, fundamental to the human person. That right to the and to that good which is common to all, which is the common good. Look, when it comes to deciding whether or not the West will stop these atrocities, I think it's important to remember, and this this came out in the research that became that book. Thank you for mentioning Waging War to Make Peace. When the demands of three separate things are met, then we can have consensus. And that is the legal demands, the political demands, and the moral demands. Right now, there's a lot of talk about the political, right? The realist arguments, the, you know, should we provoke a nuclear power? Should the United States be drawn in? And the legal, I mean, could we ever get a legal mandate from the UN? Well, of course not, because Russia will veto it. So, you know, we worry about the legal mandate and we worry about the political mandate. But that third one, the moral mandate, has always been 
tipping the scales for or against intervention. In the Kosovo case, it tipped the scales in Germany, UK, France, and the United States. It was the moral dimension which tipped us toward intervention. And the same could be said in Iraq, the same could be said in Afghanistan. And the problem was when a war is extremely unpopular, those humanitarian things seem to be tacked on and they seem to be very disingenuous. And then we don't have consensus around humanitarianism. We have political division. And so I think now is a is more unique time. We seem to have everyone in the world watching from their iPhones this war. We're all watching little girls singing the Disney song to people in their basement. It's, it's extraordinary. We're seeing children separated from parents and we're watching maternity wards being crushed by bombs. I think we're all just sort of slack jawed that this has happened, but it's okay to put it back into this political framework and say the moral outrage, it's okay that the moral outrage in the West would unite us to more than we're doing now. And I think that the United States could do more than we have. I think we're very risk averse. In the last 10 years, we've become very risk averse, certainly toward Russia and China. And I think that that has really changed the balance. And it's, it, it remains to be seen whether Americans will unite around the moral imperative or not. I think that there was a there was an interesting article. I think it was Gladden Pepin that wrote it. I'm surprised that it was, I mean, it's, it's part of the, the some of the conservative movements that usually, you know, are for the disengagement. But I think that his argument was that you can't disengage from wars and expect the international order to remain the same. It's like... It, you take one weight out of a scale, and you know, the other the other plates do not stay in place. So I think that we are somehow living with this illusion in trying to say, oh, you know, let's let's not let's not send our people. We have more important things to think about. Yeah, you know? I'm not arguing for against intervention, but I will I would say that we allowed Georgia to happen in 2008. We allowed Crimea to be taken, and we allowed the Donbass. We by not by basically lowering our risk threshold and doing nothing. And then we've seen what Russia did in Syria, for example, the humanitarian atrocities there. So sometimes not intervening provokes, right? (laughs) Uh, Because there was not the moral outrage. There was not the discussion of just war that there should have been over the last eight years. Perhaps that too, that went missing. When the moral dimension goes missing and we don't have that conversation, that threshold, that risk threshold lowers and lowers and lowers to the point now where we're all slack jawed and can't believe this is happening. But it's not too late to bring it back in. It's never too late to bring it back in. And I think now is a good time to start really having a good conversation because it will bring people who are pro-intervention and anti-intervention around this set of principles and start to talk about what what is at the root of all of this, which is the human person. Yeah, you know, when Susan, you, you know me about. and I know I know that you know the character of this show, but what we can't not talk about is precisely meant to do that. And we want to talk about the things that we that sure. apparently people don't want to talk about. And the idea of having people that disagree is at the core of our mission. And we want because we believe that there is ultimately a truth that we will discover if we continue to engage in conversation on these things. And if we just go with my my truth and your truth, and we're never gonna, you know, because you're that way, you're blue, you're red. And I see, I mean, there is something interesting in this, in this war and in this scenario, which I see the blue and red line do not seem to represent what people are thinking about this. There is a little more complexity, maybe because we all grasp as human beings, 
that there is something more important that is at the core that is happening. And so our decisions touch something that is deeper than whether we want more taxes on the house or not. I wanted to move back from these current events to more general experience that you have regarding, you know, women usually are not the ones fighting the war, but as you said, you know, you were welcoming all these women refugees. So what is the reality? What is the humanitarian need when we are sending money, right, for people in war? Like, what are the humanitarian needs for women? So... This is a big part of women, peace and security as well. It's the post-conflict. So this is another part of Just War. It's post, use post-bellum, uh, which is not articulated traditionally, but has been increasingly articulated in the last 20 years. And that is what is just after the war. And one of the areas where my organization, the American Council works, is in post-war uh, fragile states. So we're working in northern Uganda right now, rebuilding schools for children, especially in these fragile areas you know, one of the things that I think my organization has pioneered is the recognition that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children were born from sexual violence and conflict. And it's very difficult to talk about. Who wants to talk about this? We are promoting an, a beautiful, touching and moving film about these children who are now grown. They were born from violence from the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, that abducted their mothers They have a very complicated and difficult relationship with their mothers and don't know their fathers who are now still in this, you know, in this terrorist organization, but they themselves are growing and talking about love. They've created a movie. They're now talking about the movie. They're talking about things like love. They're talking about things like healing, the difficulty of not knowing a father and not being loved by a mother. But these are individuals who are born from rape who are now healing and they're bringing this healing message to this very fragile war-torn area in Northern Uganda. And what you see happening is called peace building because healing is part of peace building. And you've seen this again and again, you see the mission in Rwanda where healing and forgiveness has happened in extraordinary ways at a local level. And that comes from forgiveness, that forgiveness, that healing, that peace building. We might not be able to prevent every war, but we can foster that kind of forgiveness and that kind of healing. And out of that fabric comes an even stronger society, one that is less prone to war, one that is more understanding and compassionate. I love your words. I think, I mean, based on what you're saying, you know, humanitarian aid should be used to build philosophy schools more than, you know, where people sit down. I mean, meaning There are, of course, the basic needs of food and water, but that there is a need to go at the heart and talk, sit down with people and talk. And to get to forgiveness, you know, it's just mm. time doesn't do anything. Time, time doesn't heal by itself unless there is a process. But in your experience, have you seen humanitarian aid being misused? Well, you know, it's funny. I was a big donor to a lot of humanitarian groups and still I, until I started studying it and got a degree studying. And I realized that humanitarian aid can change the balance within communities. It's true. Uh, it creates winners and losers, rich people and poor people. It breaks down resilience that communities have had for hundreds of years. I mean, there are some side effects to humanitarian aid. But look, we're going to continue to try to refine the process and make sure that aid is distributed, not just to the power, but to families. And this is another agenda in the Women, Peace and Security agenda is to get aid to women, make sure that women, mothers, we know that when women 
are given aid, it tends less to go missing. It tends less to be sold. It tends less to be corrupted. And it tends more to be given to those in need. Look, there's something about a mother who knows that there's another mother hurting or who was poor. Now, that doesn't mean that in some cases it can it can go tribal and, and be sold. But in the main, making sure that women have equal access to aid means that more often than not, it's going to be equally shared. And the largest piece of the Women, Peace, and Security agenda is getting women to the peace table. I mean, when we make peace deals, look, there's going to be a peace deal in Ukraine. There are peace deals after these wars. And we have seen peace deals, while while wars have proliferated since the Cold War, peace deals have not. And those that have been signed have been less likely to succeed. Now, one of the reasons is because wars are religious in nature, and that can be intractable, zero sum. One is you have outside interveners like the United States, and that makes things more complicated because there are more than two parties. But another reason is we don't have civil society at the table. The people who are going to be executing that peace deal aren't at the table. So if you have a woman who perhaps has had children by rape during a war, she is now expected to welcome back in an amnestied soldier right, into her community. She's the one now who has to embrace these soldiers. And it, it could be that one of them is the father of her children, but he's been completely amnestied from any reparation or fatherhood whatsoever. And this happens time and again. And when we get women to the table, when we get mothers to the table, the ones who stayed at home with the children when the men went to war sometimes, they really know what's going on. I mean, they know where, what education, they worry about health, they worry about water, they worry about protection. They bring things to the peace deal that men tend not to bring there. And so getting women involved in peace deals is a big deal and supporting women in the peace, you know, getting making sure that they can organize safely, meet talk to one another safely, express their views. That's not always easy in some of these areas. And I think that's where we in the West can help. And I mean, I know that this is what you do with your work. So I, I think it's it's noble and commendable. And this really speaks of women. You know, this is, if we want a feminist voice, yes, this is, this is one. This is the right? feminist voice, right? Yes. Feminine voice. Right. right. Very true. And, you know, we agree with feminists on this. I mean, there's no, whether we call ourselves a conservative feminist or a liberal feminist or, or traditional or third wave, whatever it is, there are things that we do agree on, right? There is this uniqueness of women and this thing that we bring to the table. And that it, and we also agree that it is very difficult to get women to the table. One of the reasons is we're often not educated. They don't speak the language of the peace deal, right? Because they're not educated. So they don't have the language skills or they're at home. They have many children they're taking care of, and there's no one to watch the children to bring them to the peace deal. We agree on these things, we women. I mean, we understand this, and I think that there's so much room to to collaborate on, on that. Absolutely. One last thing, one last aspect that I wanted to address with you. You know, we are the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, and we talk about Klein and Burtz and shrinking families and marriages that do not happen and what the consequences of these things are. And I, you know, mm. I know that you're the co-editor of a book that speaks, you know, that goes in that direction, which you published in 2012. It's Population Decline and the Remaking of Great Power Politics. And it has been translated in Japanese too as The Life and Death of Nations. Yes, I like the Japanese title better, Life and Death of Nations. It speaks, is great. <laughs> I, I mean, I know that it speaks of the connection between population and security. Yes, so population how would you relate that to... You know, we live in a crisis of marriage, in the crisis of the family. Are we talking about very similar things? Are the two topics touching? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, the crisis of family and marriage is directly, directly related to the crisis of great power politics. Now, how is that, Dr. Yoshihara? Well, you know, for many years, we were told that it was booms in population that were making the world more insecure and unstable. And it turns out the opposite is true. It is these shrinking populations that are making some great powers far more adventuresome, including Russia right now. You know, there's a closing window of opportunity to use a 900,000 man army. And it's a hungry army and it's an an ill army because of health problems and shrinking population in that country. Same with China. They have now, they now have a declining population and they see windows of opportunity closing. And so they are gobbling up islands in the South China Sea and being more obstreperous with their neighbors sooner rather than later, because they know that they're also dwindling. And it's true in Europe. You know, while we have these humanitarian crises, Europe is less likely to go and send men and women abroad because there are fewer and fewer in their family that they can spare. And so it's making the world less peaceful and less stable. And it comes right down to those millions and millions of decisions. Do I have a child? Do I have another child? And that that idea of whether I have another child in the aggregate in a country determines whether that country will be expanding and generous or contracting. And what we're seeing now is countries that are contracting, less generous, and I think more adventuresome in in an inconvenient way, certainly for security. And it's also destabilizing, you know, the NATO allies as well, right? Because we, we disagree on the use of force and other things because each person is more precious than the next. So, so not to say there's anything we can do about it. I'm just saying that the choices that we make in the aggregate do have these ripple effects that are quite, quite extraordinary when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's no news that, uh, you know, the dictators of the past century and the centuries before that would always try to have women have more kids so that they could raise an army that could go to war. Now, there is an exception, which also speaks of something, I don't know if you want to share that, but the one-child policy of China. Right. The one child, two child, three child, whatever it is, it is a policy that punishes you if you have a child that the state has not allowed you to have. And what we found is that the the light of the large family in China has gone out and that Beijing cannot relight it at will. They're trying to get couples to have more now because they realize the error of their ways, but they can't because the norm has changed and norms are sticky things. Uh, The norm of a large family is essentially gone in China in the main, and they cannot give enough incentive for people to have a large family. We've seen this in Taiwan, too. Uh, And we certainly see that in Russia and Ukraine, very small family sizes there, which is causing, you know, all kinds of destabilizing effects there too. You know, it would be wonderful if everyone just gave up this idea that we have to tell women how many children to have. Can they just make this decision by themselves? We know from a lot of research, especially in Africa, that family sizes are largely determined by the couple and that family sizes resemble the wishes of the wife more than they do the wishes of the husband. I mean, and it tends that the husband wants a larger family, but it tends that the family size resembles the women's wishes. And I think that's a little bit countercultural too. I think we often think that that's not the case. We often think that women apparently aren't as in control as they are of their family sizes. But in any case, it matters. It does matter, the sizes of a family. And it matters certainly for the degree to which little girls have been killed because the the larger the family, the, the greater the chance that the child would be killed. So family planning 
absolutely has an effect on the killing of children before and after birth, right? You're more likely to be killed if you're a second or third or fourth child than if you were a first child. And therefore, family planning and smaller family sizes have definitely propagated this killing of baby girls. Yeah, which, uh, I mean, we could, I think we could continue forever to go on to this and the one-child policy and how girls were particularly the victims of this and the work you've done on that front too. However, I would like to close this. I, I'm happy to have you again, and I think we should have a promise to have you back to talk about your work, to talk about humanitarian aids. But I wanted, you, you mentioned something at the beginning, which was my final question on how to close, but maybe you can expand a little on it, which was, what would you say, what would, what would be your recommendation to the young women, college students out there who might, you know, be listening to you and being interested in joining the military and fight for their country? So you mentioned, like, be very sure about it. I don't know if you want to mm-hmm. say some, something more. Yes, I, I'd say that uh, for anyone, uh, military is it's kind of like a calling. It's not a vocation, but it certainly can be a calling, whether it's for a entire career the way I uh, made my career in the Navy 24 years, or whether you serve your time four or five years and uh, and you are a veteran. It is, um, it is a noble calling, and we have many different ways to serve in the military. It's not always in combat. But as a classmate of mine from Annapolis, who was a three-star Marine Corps general, reminded me, it doesn't matter whether the woman is in the rear guard, fighting alongside, or in the front line, they definitely bring something different and necessary to the campaign. So keep that in mind. Uh, Do kids come during or after the military service? Well, I I did it after. I, I had to retire and get married within a couple of months because I didn't want to deploy and leave my children. I certainly didn't want to have to balance, you know, my decision to have babies with, you know, the decision to send me to sea. So that's the way I managed it and other women manage it differently. But again, um, you know, if you're in the military, you serve your time and then, you know, choose to start a family. Men and women do that all the time. They'll leave the service for their family. So uh, there are many different ways to do it. Well, I want to thank you, Susan. And I think that we kept a promise at the beginning. We, we talk about women. And I think I want to <laughs> use the word feminism in both the traditional and non-traditional ways. Okay. Uh, in a very, in a, but in a very real way, because I can promise, sure. you know, that you're not artificial intelligence that we made up. You exist. Oh, People right. can, can totally find uh, your website. We're going to link to your books. And we're going to link to the website of your organization in this podcast. Thank you. And we are very happy to have you and feel free to pass by Austin anytime. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating. And please donate so we can do even more.